0: And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here.
1: Oh, Glenn, I'm so sorry I'm late. I was just out there training. Where have you been? I was out there training my dog. What took you so long? Well, we were doing this particular scenario Mm. where we were using a hard dog chomp. Yep. I got that from Canon Dynamics, by the way. From old mate Mark LaPointe? Mark LaPointe. Yep. Yeah. I uh, I get a lot of my working dog equipment from him.
2: He really flogs some good stuff, doesn't
1: he? Yeah. Mm. Absolutely. Canon Dynamics. Yeah. And then- my dog was attached to a leash and collar. Where did you get that from? I got that from Ironswick Dog Quip.
2: Not the old bullfed. I got it from Jason. Oh. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Ironswick Dog Quip. IronswickDogQuip.com. And,
1: and it all went perfectly. Yep. So I- had would you reward the dog? I'm bites. very interested. Well, aside from the bites on the chomp, mm-hmm. but, you know, for other things, yep. I gave
2: the dog some Brights bites. Oh, good call. Yep. Brights bites. You really are a name dropper, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You've got the best of the three. You've got the golden triad right there.
1: Absolutely. Mm. If you want, you know, if you're in North America and you want working dog equipment, Canon Dynamics. Yep. If you're in Australia and you want any kind of dog equipment, Hineswick Dog Quip. And if you're going to use dog treats, you're crazy if you're feeding your dog anything other than Bright Spot. Absolutely. Welcome back to the
2: Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio by my co-host, Glenn Cook. Back again. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Here we are. What's news? There's lots of news going on at the moment. It's crazy stuff like... The confirmed existence of a crashed alien spacecraft. Right. That no one seems to care about. Like coronavirus seems to be the only subject matter. Well, there's others, but they legitimately, Pentagon announced it, that there is a machines from another world that they have confirmed in their possession in their possession, and nobody seems to give a rat's ass about <laughs> that's it. It's so weird. I know. It's so weird. Like that you, me and Sean have been, di- Sean Edwards have been dialoguing about like going, what the f- actual fuck? Like for years, people have been wanting confirmation that there is life on other planets. There's no confirmation of that, but there's craft. Well, we should be careful about
1: what we say. Who made the craft? Well, I don't know, but- all I know is that that was in the paper in the New York Times yep. on Friday. Mm. I saw it first thing in the morning because like six people had sent me the, the article. Yep. Then it was Rip's birthday party and stuff, right? So I asked everybody. Happy Happy fifth birthday to Rip. Yeah. Happy birthday, little man. Yeah. So I asked everybody that I saw. So we had like Jane's family birthday. We had my family birthday. We had all these little buddies over. No one knows. No one legitimately not one single person. I was like, so, hey, how about that uh, alien spacecraft? Yeah. And they're like, the what? Not a single person knew what I was talking about.
2: Yeah. They look at you like, oh, you, you're you just another- Like tin, you're an idiot. And I was like, no,
1: this is a New York Times article. Like mm. I show them the article. Yeah, and they're like, it's, it's oh, legit. no,
2: that's, that, that can't be real. Yeah. It's like- I mean, it's a bit sucky for the poor people who all of their life have been running around saying there's fucking UFOs. And well, Bob Lazar, who- Bob Lazar, yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's finally vindicated. Like yep. had his whole life destroyed. Yeah. Had to- live uh, this bizarre existence has now been proven right. He was telling the truth all along. But that's the thing, right? I mean, if something like that sounds so outrageous and people have been all of their life working with the best spin doctors that the entire world can fucking manifest and they're working against you, making you look like a loony, Yeah. you know, I mean, how can you compete against that? Yeah. Because basically that's what they do. They just say, listen to this guy, Bob Lazar, crazy guy, you know. <laughs> And then people are going, "Uh, yeah, who do I believe, Bob Lazar who does sound crazy or a bunch of people who uh, seem to be our country's peers Mm. coming out and saying Bob Lazar is a crazy guy. When in fact, it turns out that he may not be after all. I was
1: talking to Jay about this the other day and we're laughing about the different hypotheses, if the aliens arrive and what Mm. they could give us. And imagine they give us like, oh, you guys train dogs. No, no, no. Like use this mind control thing and you can just talk directly to them. And we'd be like, wow, amazing. And then realize we're out of
2: the job. Or (laughs) even worse, they land and say, guess what, bitch, you're my dog. Yeah. Yeah. You guys are our dogs. Yeah. Um, And we're using compulsion. Yeah. We're old school, (laughs) yank and crank. Oh, aggression problems, hey? Yeah. Yeah, we haven't evolved into uh, positive only yet. Yeah, no, we've Mm. been through that. Where The the pendulum has swung all the way back the other way. We never stopped in the middle. Uh, We had to turn all this into dog-related somehow. Yeah. Mm. Hey, we're going to do a follow-up. Yes, to Q&As,
1: we have more, and we've mm. got a really good one from uh, Jason Long. But gonna- before we do that, we want to
2: thank you. Yeah, big to- thank you to a man called Roger Wallace. Thank you, Roger, because Roger sent us in the post a little gift for Pat and I. We get a couple little gifts here and there. I mean, it's always well-received and very much appreciated, and what we did appreciate was the lovely handwritten letter that he sent us on his appreciation for – us doing the show. Mm-hmm. We have been getting some really nice feedback from people and some correspondence backwards and forwards for people saying how much they appreciate it and how much it's meant to them. And that means a lot. It really does. Um, when Pat and I are reading it to each other or, or speaking of it, it's nice to be acknowledged. You know, we don't do this to be worldly celebrated or anything like that. We just sort of sat here and we enjoy talking to each other and learning from people and having dialogue with people around the world too. That's important to us as well. But the the thanks that people have been giving to us means that pe- it resonates with people. Mm. So Roger sent us- uh, A book? A be- yeah, well, a beautiful letter all the mm. way from
1: Vancouver. It's yeah. nice getting snail mail, like actually yeah. getting something in the post. Yeah. And he stalked us a little bit because he sent it to your workplace. So obviously that's where he got the address from. I know. Very clever, Roger. Yeah. Well well played, sir. It's like a detective. Very well played. Anyway, thanks, Roger. I appreciate it. Mm. You're very welcome for uh, the content that you seem to enjoy.
2: you know, I was watching- You know, when you start talking about snail mail and and how nice it is to receive it, because it is different from getting a a message, which is also well-received as well. So don't think that if you send us something via messenger that we wouldn't appreciate it. But I was watching a movie only a couple of days ago, which actually is a really beautiful movie called A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Mm. It's about Mr. Rogers. Oh yeah, I've watched that on a plane. Yeah, Yeah, it was a fucking tearjerker. Yeah, yeah. I found it a very confronting movie to watch. It's amazing what a nice guy he actually was. Mm-hmm. I think America in that age recognised him for that, hence the movie and, you know, why he stayed on air so long. But he pretty much was a saintly sort of guy. Like, mm-hmm. he truly gave a fuck about people. I think we're seeing a lack of that happening in the world today. Mm-hmm. It is nice to know that there are genuine there, – there still is. There still are very genuine people out there who really do give a fuck about each other. And I mean, and you and I do give a fuck about our industry because that's why we're here. Yeah. You know, we wouldn't do this and we wouldn't sacrifice a lot of our time to make this happen if we didn't care about and want the best for the industry and, you know, some of the amazing people that we've met from in it. So, you know, that is genuinely from the heart. We really do care about this industry. We only want to see it thrive and survive. mm We got a message from
1: Jason Long Mm. when we asked for show topic ideas. And so I'm going to read it. It's kind of long, but uh, we thought it was an interesting topic. So we'll go through that. So he says, hi, Glenn and Pat. Love the podcast. Great content. Thank you, sir. I wanted to write to you about a recent situation I experienced with a new client that I had started training about a month ago. I'd be very interested to hear you guys dissect the topic on the podcast if you feel it might have a broader benefit to your audience. We do. The situation involved a young married couple who happened to come across their first ever dog, an eight-week-old GSD pup. Both the couple and the dog are good individually. However, as it turns out, the dog is truly too much dog for them to handle, let alone attempt to do sport with. The dog is a super genetic dog with a fantastic pedigree, as it turns out. And the couple have done the best they can to raise a well-mannered pup. But at the end of the day, it is my opinion, it is a poor fit between the two. At no fault of their own and no fault of the dog, after three sessions with them, I had a very clear position that this dog, at 16 months old, posed some serious concerns to me about their ability to handle it appropriately. In fact, in the third session, we were showing the dog to begin running the blinds, and rather than show any interest in chasing the tug around the blind, It dragged the owner directly over to me and bit my leg. Fortunately, I was wearing my scratch pants for this exercise, which I normally do not have on. Otherwise, I'd have been injured for sure. My question to you, slash topic I would love to hear the two of you spout off on, we don't spout off on things, do we? (laughs) Never. Not us. Is... What is the responsibility of a trainer who sees a dog that is way too much dog for an owner or couple to have any business with? How do you approach it delicately or should you at all? Also, how do you educate someone that truly has a dog that should probably be sweeping the streets regarding the risks involved with continuing to own that dog, where their skills as handlers are not up to the level of the dog? Granted, Most people are going to not be at the level of their dog, but this was a huge disparity in skill and knowledge of the handler and strength of the dog. Mm. I informed the couple as kindly as possible that based on my observations of the dog, its temperament and drive thresholds, that this dog would be better suited for an experienced working dog home or law enforcement agency. And I had some honest concerns that this dog could become too strong for them and create some risk risks as it continued to mature. I did my best to let them know that the decision was theirs to make but it would not be a good idea for them to continue to create a stronger dog by pursuing sport training with the dog as a result of their skill. When they thought they bought a pet they ended up with a real man stopper. I would also love to hear you address this issue as if you were speaking to new pet owners that might find themselves in the same position as my clients so that I could be able to parrot some of your advice to them in this situation. Thanks for your consideration. Stay well, Jason.
2: Mm. Mm. Well, there's a lot of dogs that have died for that exact reason. Yes. I'm not talking a few here and there, like there's probably millions around the world that have been in that, a parallel situation to what Jason's describing and the dog has paid for it Mm -hmm. because this is the epitome of people letting their ambitions get mixed up with their capabilities. And it's not that they're bad people. They're not. They just don't know any better. There's a lot of ethical breeders out there and there's a shitload more unethical ones. Mm. You know, like somebody put up a meme the other day of – somebody sitting at the – I think it was 50 Cent one of his movies sitting at the end of a table with a table full of cash. Oh, yeah. And they're basically saying ethical breeders be like, I'm just in it for improving oh, the breed. Yeah. I saw that in that Muzz, Muzz group. Right, yeah. yeah. It's Floyd Mayweather with all his money. That's right, yeah, Floyd, yeah. you're right. So the point is there is people out there who are doing the right thing by breed standards. They are sticklers for it. You know, they're working very hard to try and educate people. They spend a lot of time and there's other people out there who steal their mantle and claim that they're doing the same thing and they're not. And they are happy to fucking give a wrong dog to an innocent, innocent couple that come along and just saying, yeah, you'll be right. You'll be fine. Don't worry. And there's other breeders who have no idea what they're doing as well. So I'm not blaming all the breeders and saying it's always their fault and they do this deliberately because there's some breeders who don't actually know that their dog is going to develop into that. Yeah. Even in this case, we don't know. Like Exactly. It could just be a freak. Well, you know, as we said in early episodes, The Superdog program confirmed that it is impossible to tell what – well, not impossible, but it's improbable that you will absolutely get a guarantee as what you get from a puppy will turn into the adult. Mm. So you just can't project forward because there's been dogs that have started off life looking like sissies and have become incredible working dogs, and there's other dogs that look like they're as tough as nails who just never manifest into the working dog that the home desired. Mm. You know, like they have some traits, but they don't have the same traits. If you breed right and you're making sure that there is a purpose behind what you're doing and it's not infiltrated by a lot of different lines, you're pretty much guaranteed that there's going to be some good cream in that crop. Yeah. That's going to happen. But, you know, there are a lot of people out there at the moment, like I'm saying, who are breeding dogs for whatever purpose they're doing in, who don't know what they're doing and they don't know what they're giving to other people. Just before we carry on, I think something you just talked about
1: there about breeding dogs and being able to tell what you get, I think that's worth exploring just for a moment. Mm. I think uh, I find myself, it, it's tricky for us in Australia because Malinois have only been here like 20 odd years. Yeah. Right? And I that's, think, yeah, about, uh, I think about 20, 20, 25 years. Yeah. And that's where my knowledge Like, not that I'm a big uh, pedigree guy, but you're pretty good with it. I have a fairly robust understanding, just because in males, because it's that's right. So I only know anything about males. I don't know anything about uh, any other dogs. Mm. Anyway, I think that something that I think is worth understanding is why old kennels are better to go to, not better, more reliable in consistency. Is that you eventually get to remove a lot of genetic variants. Mm. And a, I think a lot of people coming into working dog scenes when they look into pedigrees and stuff like that. And certainly I used to say this as as well, because I had mongrel dogs sort of growing up. Yep, like the, we had border collies and they were farm dogs, right? Mm-hmm. That you got from a farmer who bred a litter and had extra ones, right? As well as my- pet that I had before I was into dogs, Ernie, he was some kind of mongrel, border collie, don't even know, right? Um, And they were great dogs, like, you know, lived to be way too old and were healthy their whole lives. And not that I was into training, but didn't do anything, you know, like they were just perfect pets.
2: The care back then was, do the pets work? Do they do the job they're supposed to do? You know, and I'm talking about, you know, those border collie crosses, kelpies and so forth. Like, do they round up sheep? Do they do this? Do they do that? So mm. no one, like there was an internal knowledge about who the parents were and, yeah. you know, what generations they came from and so forth. But for pet people, no one cared. Yeah. They so just wanted a, a family dog. That's right. And so I would talk about, before I knew anything about it,
1: just, mm. you know, that's what you do, especially, it's a pity online resources weren't available then, so I could have exposed my no knowledge to as many people as possible <laughs> rather than individual conversations. Mm. But I used to talk about, like, crossbreeds being so much more robust and you yep. see inbred dogs or linebred dogs or, you know, just purebred dogs having so much issues of health and all that kind of stuff. And, yeah, that can be the case, mm. right? But the issue with an outcross of any kind, whether you're breeding two different breeds together or even if it's two completely separate bloodlines of the same breed – is what I have come to learn is that you really don't know what the fuck you're going to get.
2: Well, you don't know where the influences are coming
1: from. That's right. Mm -hmm. You don't know what's going to happen. And so just breeding two Malinois together, this is what took me a a little while to understand, and I find myself explaining this to a lot of people, is just breeding two random Malis together just because they – themselves display good traits does not mean that they're going to create puppies that display those same two traits. You really to know what's going to happen. There's a lot going on in the background Mm. and further going back. And so, like the bloodlines that we have in Australia that have been well established and are line bred are perfect for the purpose, right? Mm. And so they're really IPO dogs and they're really particularly suited for that. And the people who are doing it in Australia anyway, that are importing a lot of dogs and are breeding for police and military type stuff, like, you know, not pedigree dogs, but they follow, they're they're tracking lineage, but they don't have registered FCIA like Dogs New South Wales pedigrees. They're fairly new to doing that. They're only a few generations in, and mm. so there's still a lot of – it's still outcrossing, right? And the reason when you look at these old bloodlines, say you look at, say, like one of the first malleys or like really good ones brought into the country was Aris, right? eyes Aris. And Kukai's is a very old Belgian bloodline, mm. right? They have a particular look, and you can – Make predictions about that because there's much less genetic variance. There's way less things that can go wrong. Mm-hmm. And when you look at these really old bloodlines, of, and it's a family that has been breeding a breed for three generations, it's strong establishment. Know, yeah, mm. at that point, they're, they're pretty close to cloning dogs, mm. right? Like, because there's so much less variance that's going into it. And you can start making real, reliable predictions about dogs. Mm. And then when they have been breeding those dogs for a long time, then they'll be able to tell you when they've done a hundred matings, right? And you see a puppy at eight weeks, you go that trait, I know that trait turns into X trait at 15 months old. Mm. And the only way you can be sure of that is you've seen it you know, manifest over and over and over and over. So I think that's something that like is worth exploring for us just to understand that is that some breeders, they really, like if they're fairly new to it or, or they might be breeding for... Their whole life, you might be buying a breeder from an 80-year-old man that's been breeding dogs since he's 10 years old. But if it's an outcross, and it's the first time he's done that outcross, he doesn't know what he's going to get, let Mm -hmm. alone you as the owner. You're then really at a position where you have to take every puppy at face value. With an outcross, every puppy has to be taken at face value. And you see weird things happen with puppies, especially in working dogs. You see sometimes they cracker like puppies and then they finish teething and they just never want to bite again. And Mm. it's not through bad training. Of course that can be a thing. And then you see other puppies that are real flat and not that impressive as young. And then they come in at, at later date. And uh, you know, that's one of the things I find so frustrating about elder Dobermans that I've had the mispleasure of having (laughs) to work is that there doesn't, to me, most of the Dobermans I've worked, there doesn't appear to be anything that I like about those dogs up until they're over two years old. And then some of them suddenly become monsters, right? Mm. Like real man stoppers. Uh, And there's no indication that that's in there
2: until it's like two years old. It happens to Roddy's too. Roddy's the same, Yeah, they can be really late maturers. Yeah. Like they're big, playful, dumb dopes up until they're about 18 to 24 months old. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it's a complete character change. That's right. So if you've got someone
1: who's experienced in, say, like – fast maturing, sharp Malley bloodlines to look at a Roddy that is 12 weeks old, Mm. you go, this thing's useless. There's nothing in there that I can do, that I can use to turn into a working dog. There's Mm. no trait in this dog that I like. But then you come back three years later and you go like, oh, holy shit. Like it's, there it is. I see it. I can use that. Whether it's prey or defense or whatever it is, you can look at it and go, oh, okay, that's, that's a usable trait. But that's totally invisible to you at 12 weeks old in some dogs. Mm-hmm. So I think that's worth acknowledging and sort of understanding that is that sometimes you just do get that freak and the breeder didn't know it was coming and there's no way they could have known it's coming. That's right. And if you tried to have that conversation with what sounds like these people who just wanted a GSD, I just want a German Shepherd why not? Mm. Like, and you go to the breeder, if you tried to have that long conversation where that's going over most people's heads, Mm. because I think that like myself prior to being immersed in the dog world and understanding breeding a little bit is that you think, Oh, well like it's an outcross that'll be like, that'll be healthier. And you go, yeah, maybe, or maybe we just doubled down on two hidden genetic traits, which makes it like a guarantee of them getting it. Mm. Or, you know, there could be lots of different things. We just, we really don't know. And explaining that, you know, uh, to most people is not probably going to, you know, it's not going to go down with the average person. I once tried to explain this. Oh, well, they the don't w- understand it. Yeah. Uh, one time I once tried to explain this uh to some people at a seminar and I just use color, but you know, the thing like I, I was talking about Labradors and how they can come in like three colors, Yeah. but I don't know like that black is dominant or recessive or whatever but i was explaining how you can have two like yellow lab parents and not produce only yellow lab puppies right and the same thing could be that you might have two parents that look fantastic and then you could have that but that carry the gene that will make puppies useless mm. And they don't express it, they carry it. And then when you breed them together, they create a bunch of useless puppies, right? Like, and that's no fault of anybody other than the the genetic dice that was rolled. That's right. And I was also, you know, then it's worth acknowledging as well as that, like from the four genes that are available via the parents, only two go into the puppy, one's expressed and one's not. So you can have litter mates. This is something we see as well in the sport community, right? Is that like a, a couple of people in a club will get dogs that are litter mates and they make these like, uh, if they compare. Well, it works on this dog, so it'll work on him because he's litter mate. But it's possible that there's the complete other set of genes yeah. went into that dog. So yeah, they're litter mates. They were born on the same day, but they're, total opposites from each other that's that, that, a possibility as well that's a bad assumption anyway regardless yeah but yeah. that's you see that a lot right yeah, you and do. you see people say like you know this guy is doing so well with this dog because it's capable look that's the that's what's possible mm. and then you look at the person and go you're to blame because that dog has the same genetics as that dog and you say well maybe but maybe he got a completely set, different set of genes from the same parents. That's yep. a total possibility as well. Look at Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Twins. Exactly. <laughs> okay.
1: But then, you know, I use my own brother as an example. Like my brother is probably got four inches height on me and 30 kilos on me. I could never be that. I, it's There's no making me any taller. Mm. He's my brother.
2: We're from the same parents, right? Yeah. But we're genetically very different. Well, I'm, um, to- I'm the tallest boy in my family. Family, apart from my Dutch heritage, mm-hmm. you know, the people in my, in my yeah. Dutch background, they're all quite tall people. Naturally Dutch people are generally tall, but my Australian lineage, I was probably a good three or four inches on top of them.
1: Yeah. So you don't know what you're going to get. Right. And so that, I think in regards to Jason's question, I feel like that's something that's worth explaining to people mm. is that through n- It could be malicious. You could have a jerk breeder, but also it could be no fault of anybody's. Right. Nobody knew that this dog was going to turn out to be this. Yeah. Like it's a genetics is a dice roll every time you breed a set of dogs. Mm. And especially if it's a a new outcross, and you've never done this mating before. There is no telling what you're going to get. You might get a fucking amazing set of dogs or, and then you might repeat that. You might get, 10 puppies that are the best puppies on the planet Mm. and you repeat that mating and you get 10 puppies that are the worst, right? Like that is a hundred percent possible to happen. And the reason old bloodlines avoid that is because the longer you've been breeding the same set of genetics together, the less genetic variation you get. The problem is then of course, sometimes that lack of genetic variation causes problems that are like health issues that we can observe. If mm. you if you've got epilepsy in the bloodline, and both parents carry it but don't express it, then you can. It's possible that they create a whole litter of puppies that have epilepsy.
2: And then the problem for us, as we've explained before, is that you can't guarantee that that didn't get switched on through epigenetics as well, exactly. which is also a part of the dice roll. Yeah, is which that,
1: is an even more difficult. To well, understand, that's completely
2: unknown because yeah. you don't know where that crept in from. Was yeah. that you know was that influenced through grandparents, parental, or you know, through gestation. Yeah. We don't know. Yeah. Mm. So it makes it difficult. So uh, yeah, that's what I just wanted to acknowledge
1: that it could be totally nobody's fault that you Mm. end up with the exact opposite dog of what you wanted.
2: Yeah. I was thinking on it a little bit while you were talking as well about his question about the sensitivity of how do you raise this with the owners? You and I have talked about subject matter, not dissimilar to this, but You know, also about being the smartest person in the room. I guess as a trainer, you're supposed to be in that subject matter. Mm -hmm. So if somebody comes to you that's green, and by green, I mean they have no experience, and they are asking you the questions about, you know, what should I do? Well, you're the authority. So it's not dissimilar to going to a doctor. If you go to a doctor and the doctor has to tell you bad news, they need to tell you the bad news. Mm -hmm. And it needs to be done in a certain ethical way. I feel the same way about giving bad news to owners of dogs too, especially when the pairing has been mismanaged. One of the first things I do before I answer the question is I ask them a question, how is this affecting your life? Just tell me day to day how you see this going so far. They'll generally give me a bit of an update saying, you know, it's quite disruptive and in all honesty, it's not going so well. So then I ask them if this was to project forward, And this dog gets heavier and bigger as it's bound to do. You know, that's the law of nature with puppies growing into adult dogs. How do you foresee this when the dog gets stronger and more agile in its behavior? That's the question which usually is confronting, but also it generally finalizes things in their Mm minds. And even if it doesn't, what I propose to them is go away and think about it. Have a discussion about it because you've got to let sensibility override love in this situation. You know, if you're going to stick with the dog, here's what your life looks like, and here's what you're bound to now to prevent problems from reoccurring, which means that you're pretty much strapped in for a long training role. And that doesn't mean paying a trainer to do it. You know, and I think in an earlier episode, I think I took this from Chad Macken, who explained that you need to create a professional handler from those people. They need to become more than just a dog owner that trains their dog. They need to actually... Hop into the realm of becoming a professional handler, which means that they they do need to invest in the short term and in the long term they've got to do all the required homework that they need to do to shape that dog's behaviour in a somewhat managerial position that they can live a an uncomplicated life together. Yeah,
1: so let's explore that then mm. because I think we see we do see online a lot of people, especially you remember that movie Max that came out about yeah. like. About a Malinois, like a- That ex-
2: influenced everyone to go out and
1: start buying males. Well, did it though? Like, here's the thing. And so people up in arms- They, they all do. And you see it in dog training groups on Facebook all the time. People yeah. up in arms like, nobody should be getting a Malinois first time <laughs> pet and blah, blah, blah. And it's like it's Why? like everybody forgot that they started somewhere. Yeah, right? like that's Everybody true. That's has true. to have- Everybody that's- world experts in any breed had their first one, mm. right? At some point you got your first one and maybe it was a baptism by fire. And people talk about, well, they'll never be able to handle that dog and the dog will ruin their life. Maybe. Or maybe they rise to the occasion and become a fucking amazing dog handler and them and their dog go on to live an amazing life. Right? Or a super
2: trainer because they migrate across the path.
1: Exactly. Mm. And so I feel like, yeah, we can guide people and sort of tell them, hey, this is what you will need. Mm. Rather than saying to people, I just think that as well, you're likely to kick people's opposition reflex into action, right? As soon as you say, like, uh, totally. nobody should own one of these dogs. Like, I've never wanted to own anything so much in my goddamn life Absolutely. as when you sell me, I can't, mm. right? And I think it's better to just lay it out to people and go, like, hey, here's the reality of the situation, right? Like, here's some choices, yeah. yeah. And if you still if you still feel like this is a dog for you, then good luck, right? Yep. And and I wish you all the best. And if it doesn't work out, let me know because hopefully I'll you've done a good job raising that dog into being a little monster and I'll take it off your hands and I'll sell it, right? Mm. Like don't don't put it into rescue before you give me a call, right? Yeah, and absolutely. I'll I'll go give you <laughs> some money for that dog. Yep. But I, yeah, I feel really strongly about that that I don't like that telling people what they should and shouldn't have, mm. right? Like it's a free world. You wanna get a you wanna buy a fucking killer dog? Like that's up to you. Mm. You have to live with the concept. Consequences of your actions for sure. But there's loads of people. In fact, the majority, I think the majority, certainly that my story goes that way. And I feel like the majority of people listening to this, as well as the people in the industry are so because they got a dog that was a problem for them. And they then went like, oh, okay. Like you're one of the rare ones that just was like, oh, I'm interested in this and pursued it as a career path. The overwhelming majority of people involved in dog training are so because they're like, holy fuck, I've got, I've got this problem dog and I'm mm. not finding anybody that can help me with it adequately. Therefore, I will have to research the topic and become the person that can help. Or they do get really good help from somebody who then becomes their mentor. And yep. then they decide like, hey, this is amazing. I, I want to pursue this.
2: I want to stay in this. Mm. Diverting slightly on what you talked about before in reputations of Opposition Reflex. Again, you know, while you're talking, it was it was conjuring up an image in my mind. And I remember talking to my buddy Scott years ago about motorbikes. And there is a Kawasaki model called a ZX-10, mm-hmm. which in the, I think in the early 2000s, one was called the Grim Reaper and the other was called the Widowmaker. Right. Because it killed more young men than whatever. Yeah. You know, So the problem with that is it started attracting people to wanting them. Yeah. The name itself, because people wanted to be able to tame the beast, Mm -hmm. you know, like I've got a Grim Reaper. And, I mean, Scott bought one. But, I mean, he's a terrific motorcyclist. But he bought a Grim Reaper, you know, which is an early model ZX-10. And it's the same thing I find with dogs. When you say to people, don't do this, don't get this, the next thing you know, they've turned up with the puppy. Yeah. It's kind of like, you know, I'm going to be the one to – to get this puppy under control and you'll all see. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes, I have i mean, over 30 years you see a lot of – you see a lot of trends going on and you see a lot of remarkable behaviours in people and a lot of times people have done that. And I, exactly as you've said before, I've seen the rise and fall of, of some of these dogs yeah. where people have gone and they've turned up with a puppy and it's been the worst thing they've done or they've turned up with a puppy and it's really – for them, it's been the best thing that they did because it kicked them into gear – and it made them realign their stars and mm-hmm. they became a different person because of that. Some of the people I'm thinking about as I'm talking about this, it actually took them from being an erratic person to somebody who suddenly life made sense to them. They mm-hmm. found purpose. Yep. And there's a good book on that too called Ikigai. It's a Japanese book about finding purpose in your life. Okay. And I've seen people shape their own manifestation of behavior simply by being in a, in an impossible situation that they've turned it around. Yeah. So it does
1: happen. Yeah, of course. My issue over that is I have absolutely zero concern over this sort of situation that we're talking about with Jason, like someone who's got too much dog for them. Because mm. as we're about to talk about, there's many ways out of that. I have no worries about that. So when people say, oh, you shouldn't get that breed, you won't be able to handle it, well, maybe they can handle it, right? And at worst, they can't. And we're about to talk about the many paths that you can give that person. Mm. What I am concerned about is people breeding dogs that would be suitable for that person to fulfill that market. That concerns me very, very much. Right. And then that's not good for anybody because first of all, they're not getting what they wanted because they watched Max and they want a dog that's capable of that kind of work. Now, now whether they should have that, that's another, that's another conversation, but that's what they wanted. Mm. And by breeding pet quality Malinois, that's like, further diluting the gene pool yep. and you're not giving them what they wanted because mm. if you want a pet-quality Malinois, get a German Shepherd and cut its hair short, yep. right? <laughs> that's
2: yeah, going to yeah. upset some German Shepherd people. Oh, wow. Well, I tend to agree with you. There were certain breeds that they should be left in reserve to fulfil their role and that's not happening because people are then saying, well, I want one. No, you should be allowed to have one, but let's not water it down. Correct. You should be allowed. Like if
1: you if you want to drive a tank, that's fine by me. Yeah, But like it's gonna be a real tank. We're not gonna we're not gonna put like a a little paper facade around your car and call it a tank, Mm. right? You want a tank? Let's fucking drive a tank. Yep. Right. What I do worry is that we then reduce the the quality of the dogs. Mm -hmm. Big time. That worries me.
2: Yeah, I agree. I've seen the decline in some breeds. Well, Doberman, Rottweiler, Mm -hmm. and they were the two breeds I was thinking about. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
1: Big problems, Mm -hmm. and I think the the issues there. You know, relate a lot to do with the show line issues yeah. and there's much we could talk about. On
2: that. Look, I've copped some flack over this from colleagues that I've known for years and they've said, Oh, you know, I've I heard you and Pat talking about this. And I think that there are a lot of holes in your argument and so forth. Like everything, we have an opinion on it and it's not based loosely on just being in the game for five minutes. I've been in Rottweiler specifically for 30 years I've seen some problem Rottweilers in that time as well, and I've I've seen those type of dogs that certain families have had that shouldn't have had, and the reasons why people said, you know, something had to change. Also, there is a good explanation to say there should have been better education in people, and there should have been breed limiting and so forth, not dilution of the breed. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, the argument was, oh, we're making the dog safer. Or are you?
1: Yeah, I'd say not. Mm. All right, so then that leads into the next part of what Jason has said, right? is that he didn't think this dog was suitable because of how strong it was and how incapable they were, that yep. pursuing sport probably was only going to worsen their situation. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? Depends who the trainer is. Yeah. See, I'm in two minds over that piece of it as well. Mm. I think that, I mean, he's the one that's making the assessment. We haven't seen the people. So maybe right. he, he, he makes the assessment, no, because of their lives and whatever, they don't have the time energy. Yep. So I think that – the truth is in the dedication of the handler. Yep. I think that if you can convince people like, hey, this is- You need to become the professional handler. Yeah. Mm. And if, if you can give them the guidance and you've got the skill set to do that, and then that's the great way to go. Yeah. But a little bit of that is- probably quite dangerous yep. because imagine you get a person and, and they've got the skill. They're like, they're going to pick it up. They've got the capability, they're blah, 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 mm. but they don't have the time. So they come to you and you do a couple of little bite work sessions and you show this dog a little few bits and pieces and you empower the dog and you show him, Hey, not only are you allowed to use your mouth to bite yep. but you're incredibly effective at it. yeah. Then they drop off your radar before the control piece is put in, right? Mm. And now they don't come to club or to training often enough that the dog's had a taste of what it is to be powerful with his mouth, but then doesn't get it often enough to be satiated by it. I think that's the recipe
2: for disaster, right? Victorian government, when they first started talking about the amendments and the writing the policy of the Domestic Feral and Nuisance Animal Act way back in the 90s when things were changing and and shit was hitting the fan in Victoria in relation to working dogs and sport dogs, et cetera, et cetera. That was the argument that they kept coming back with all the time. What about the half-trained dog? Mm-hmm. What about the half-trained dog? What about the half-trained dog? What about the people who leave you? What about the people who don't see this through? What about the people who start off, do 10 sessions, and you they disappear? How do we control that? Yeah, That was the problem that nobody had a, a, a satisfying answer for. Yeah, and I get it.
1: that mm. that, that is the issue. That right? is the issue. That is the issue big time is that I think in Jason's situation, as he's explained, that sounds like that's exactly what he's concerned about Mm. right is that you show the dog just give it a taste yeah but then the 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 control work isn't done the dog is never going to be fully satiated because you know like we we spoke about last week and we spoke about it many many times like my dog is a couch potato lives in the house walks on eggshells right because he gets to work Mm. if he didn't get to work as often as he did then that he would be a disaster yeah and like most of his type right and so i think that that's the issue is that you are better off kind of, if you had to choose, am I going to be all in for sport? Am I going to be half in for sport? Or am I going to, you know, never open those doors? Those two end examples are the are safer than the half in. Like right. That's, right. The, that's the real issue.
2: Yeah. I guess when you're having a conversation with anybody, you've got to look at how many red flags keep popping up. And again, I'm going to go back into a motorcycle discussion, a quick one. Ages ago when Narelle and I came to New South Wales and we both decided to get our bike licenses. I've been riding bikes for years when I was a kid, but you know, for a long period of time I stopped. So I basically said, let's make this official in New South Wales. We'll both go and get a license together. And when we did our our learner course, there was a lady on the course. There was probably about, you know, 10 guys, probably about four girls that were doing the course. And there was one lady on the course that was just horrendous. She was crashing the bike, fall not not totally crashing because they'd stop her. The instructor was um, ride onto her the whole time, stayed with her, you know, tried not to shadow her too much to make her nervous or anything like that. But he grabbed the clutch and grabbed the bike and stop it because she'd, you know, fall off, um, false start the bike, did everything that you shouldn't be doing in, in motorcycle riding. Yeah, yeah. So at the end he, he stopped. He just said, no, look, I'm sorry, I'm, ha- I'm going to have to call it. And she burst into tears and she said, oh, this is the third time i failed this course and my <laughs> husband's going to get so mad with me because he wants to go motorcycle riding. And he gently said to her and he said, look, I'm doing this to save your life. He said, you're talking about getting out there on the road. He said, this is a very controlled environment, you know, and he said, I'm observing it from pretty much the smartest person in the room. I'm an experienced rider. I know what happens out there. People out in on the roads don't care about, what you think and feel and about how well you're riding he said if you make one mistake out there you're going under a car Mm. and he said and i really can't have that on my conscience you know he said i want you to live a a full and productive life and he said right now i have to have to stop you he said it's not to say that you can't come back and try again he said but for today it's over and he said i have to call it when i looked at him you know like he came back over and i said you did the right thing man you know, she's a nice person. I don't know her. We were talking to her at lunch before we went out and did the practical side, after we did the theoretical side. She's a lovely lady, but she had no clue on a motorcycle. Yeah, done, yeah. Like I was cons- I was next to her. I was very concerned about it. Yeah, yeah. you know, I thought she's just going to come spiralling over at me and take me off the bike. Yeah, yeah. And how dare she? I was enjoying myself.
1: Uh- <laughs> <laughs> Since we're talking motorbikes, yeah. when I did my learner's course, I got there really early. I just didn't know how long it would take mm. to get there. And so I was there, you know, super early. So I'm sitting in my car reading or something and uh, I see a guy turn up, yep. right, and on a motorbike and he pulls in. So I assume he's one of the instructors and he's kind of waiting around as well. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, people are trickling in. I don't pay that much attention to, but I notice the guy. Yep. And uh, then we get put into our groups and he's in my fucking group, right, to learn how to ride oh, he a illegally just rode right? up on his phone. Well, here's the thing. And so once. Whence- when they put everyone aside and all the instructors are talking, they then notice there's a motorbike in the car park. Yep. Right. And so they then to everybody say like, Hey, um, anybody ride a bike here? And no one puts their hands up. I've watched this guy turn up, right? Yep. I'm not going to snitch on him, but yep. he's like just standing there like, no, no, like deadpan. <laughs> like, no, it wasn't me. Yep. So he's in my little group and they're, they're like, well, we know one of you rode a bike here because that's, it's in the car park. Yep. Right. Anyway, He's the worst. He's the worst in the group. He Mm. drops the bike that they are showing us how to on. He's just a disaster. And then they, same thing, they fail him. And then he like cracks it and goes storming over to his bike. And takes off. Yeah. But they had the cops waiting down the street. Like they watched him and then he's like, ah, fuck all you and gets
2: on his bike. And the cops were like, Woo, got him. Yep. I thought it was one of the funniest things ever. Jerk off. Jerk off. Big Mm. time. Yeah. Anyway. So Jason, I think there's merit to your concerns. You know, like when Pat originally read that to me when we were in our pre-podcast meeting, I would share your concerns. You know, I think what we've divulged is that address the red flags. Yeah. If you can see that there's so many of them and it's just surmountable, I think it's time to really have some carefully worded and empathetic discussions with them because it's, you know, obviously they've fallen in love with this puppy like most people tend to do. It's a personality they've had in their home. And, I mean, it's like, It's like a lot of things where you have dogs in the house or puppies in the house. You see a different side of that pup inside, but that's a discussion you need to have them as well. Is this just here on the field or is this happening at home as well? Does it happen when you bring visitors over? Is the dog constantly in a state of stimulation? Is it is aroused all the time or is he sedate when he's at home? And this is the first time you've seen this behavior. So there's a lot of, like I said, there's a lot of um, discussions that need to take place and for me, really, it's all the surmountable red flags. Yeah. So we've ticked off the two things that we can say. In the conversation with someone, we'd
1: say, hey, look, genetics have rolled the dice and this is you've, you've rolled. In your circumstances, a snake eyes, but for most people, this is a seven, Yeah, right? Well, for people in the industry. Mm. Okay, so we've removed that. We have that conversation with the people then we have to ourselves make this decision about whether we get them into the sport. Are they going to, do they have the capacity to do that? Like as handlers, can we train them to the position where they're going to be able to manage this dog? If, do they have the time and are they willing to make that commitment? Right. And then that's where we would just do as we discussed there, decide, Hmm, should we, try and get you into the sport or should we say, nah, this isn't, you, you don't have the, the time or the skill set or whatever the variable is that we say, okay, mm. doing some bite work, we're only going to make this dog more powerful. We're only going to create you more issues. Then the conversation, if we're going to go, like if we then think that the dog is a candidate to be rehomed and that everybody's life is going to be improved by that, I personally think there's three paths to that conversation. And which one I'll present, well, the order that I would present them in, would depend on the person, mm-hmm. right, and their circumstances, and you know just who they are as people, right. And the first that you can use, and it's probably the last, and what I would like to use, uh, is fear, right. So I think that these days we still tell kids that the Easter Bunny and Santa Claus are real, mm-hmm. but we don't tell them about the boogeyman anymore, right. And the Baba Yaga is like a big motivator. So when you say to people like, "Hey, you've got a fucking killer here," that you don't have the capacity to control. And especially in this circumstance, if the dog bit him, Mm. you then can say like, hey, here's all the evidence you need. Like this will result in somebody being bitten. And then you can explore the idea of, you know, that's you with that on your conscience, if they're that person, right? Mm. So you could say like, hey, that's you, putting someone in hospital or, you know, having a, a friend, family member, colleague that can never walk properly again because your dog relieved them of their Achilles tendon, right? Like yep. whatever you want to say, that's one path for fear. The other then, so if they're a caring person and you decide to use fear as a motivator, I would say that, right? You're going to get somebody hurt. Okay. Mm-hmm if they're not such a caring person, if they're a financially motivated person, then you would say like, this is you getting sued. Okay. No matter how you feel about the person that your dog by accident bites, yep. you are responsible for this dog. If the dog bites anybody by accident, you are, well, it depends on where you are exactly in the laws of that place. But like here you're, you're liable for the actions of your dog. Mm. Right. So that's you getting sued and you're going down that uh, administrative pathway. That's going to cost you a lot of money. Right. So there's that, issue as a motivator. I think that that fear as a motivator is the last one that I would want to use if I were trying to convince someone to rehome their dog. But I think that we forget that it's a very powerful motivator, right? Like we still, are, you know, the, the Easter bunny's real. Don't know nah, the boogeyman's not real. Well, he's as real as the Easter bunny, right? Like mm. you, you can use that as a motivator. I think the other path that you can go down is the, like, if you love something, set it free. Okay. And this is what I usually would tend to the, the times that I have successfully uh rehomed dogs to working roles have been exactly this and I would say you've done an amazing job raising this dog but it's time to let him be a big boy now right like he's outgrown your capacity here and I use like myself as an example even though it's not that accurate but it kind of fits as like your fifteen to eighteen month old dog there, like that's he's finished his teenage years, he's about to be an adult. It's time to let him leave the house and go on to his career. And his career is a street sweeper. This mm. if that's the dog that you've got. And I sort of use my like my own example. Like I have a I love my parents. I was raised perfectly, but at 19 I went and joined the army. Mm. Right? Like that's who I was. That was what I was that was what I was destined to do. And that's maybe you can say that to these people as well. Like, hey, you know, in and this is largely true True, you can say to them, hey, you know the police typically don't raise their own dogs and the armies typically don't raise their own dog. They rely on people like you to prepare dogs perfectly for them, which you have done. Mm. And if you, the best thing you can do for this dog, if you love him and the best thing that you can do for his fulfillment would be to move him on to one of those locations. Yep. Right. Mm. And you can then say like, he will have an amazing life. This is what he was genetically engineered to do, whether by accident or on purpose, this is the dog that you've ended up with. He's not going to fit into your life. And I know you love him. I know that you'd feel like you're giving up on the dog, mm. I know that that feels like culturally we have this idea that you know this is your dog it's your dog for life. But that is not in the best interests of the dog, nor you, right? You, The dog is going to love you, but he's going to resent the life that you've provided him, right? Mm. And you too may love the dog, but you'll resent the dog in the long run because you will have to alter your life to keep this dog from injuring anybody that, that he encounters, right? So I think that's a really strong motivator where you can say to people, this is totally normal. This is a thing that happens, right? Yep. This is a totally normal thing and, and I know you love this dog and giving up on it, moving it to another. Another life is not giving up. Mm. That is moving it to the next stage in its life. And you've done an amazing job at this first stage. I wouldn't change a thing you've done. You've done everything that you've done has led to this dog being what he is now. Mm. But he needs to get a job. He, it's time for him to leave home, and it's time for him to go and pursue his career. Yeah. And I think mostly, like the, the, I think that's usually pretty helpful in motivating people that way, right? Like I think I that when you when you hear it in turns like that, like you've done nothing wrong. That's just who he is. He's mm. ready to go on to the next phase in his life. And I think most people think that all the police and military, they raise their own dogs. It's very rare that they raise dogs successfully, now. right? Now, yeah. Now, yeah. It's that they get people from exactly that situation. Mm. As, uh, you know, as uh, saying pat nolan said it on our show like the best dogs aren't created in the kennel they're raised in the kitchen yep. right and so of course you get good dogs raised in kennels right but mm. the dogs that go on to have fantastic careers typically were someone's dog yep. in exactly this type of situation so they know how to be a house dog mm. you've done the hard part yeah the rest of you've it given what,
2: them the great foundation they needed
1: yeah mm. the rest of it what what they're going to be taught by someone at a, at, a, at a handler school and whatever. is mm-hmm. They're going to be shown detection. You can explain to people at that point like they're not teaching him shit. They're teaching him what to find, not mm-hmm. how to find. He knows how to do that. Yeah. And we're going to go on to the bite work and you're going to say hey look, he's he just bit me because he felt like, imagine what a good time he's going to have in the mm-hmm. hands of someone who points him at the right people to bite and the impact that he can have on the community and the good that he can do now out like out, outside of your home where he's essentially turning food into shit and providing love to you. That love can always be there. You'll Always have that dog. Stay in touch with the handler. Ultimately follow the dog through. I, I, I know handlers that love that when they get it contacted yeah, It's a by... sense of pride.
2: Totally. That, that was my dog. I raised him as a
1: baby. And totally. Now look at him go. I've even been, uh, it was one of the most bizarre situations I've ever seen in my life, but I was in the States and was went to a play date- with the raiser of the dog who is now a police dog, right? Mm-hmm. And it was a similar kind of situation where the handler loved the idea that the dog still got to go and meet the people who had raised him. It was actually very cute, right? It was a very yep. strange situation I've never seen replicated, but, He loved the idea that the dog got to go back and see the people that turned him into what he was, but gets to sweep the streets with him by day, Mm. right? So like, you can totally tell people that's a, you can find the right department that will allow that, or you can put this dog into the hands of a person that would love to have that relationship with you and the dog. It's not like he's gone from your life. It's not like you never see him again, Mm. even if even it's a different area. Like I get messages from Ben Gertz of dogs that he has with the WA police and we had him on. Like he sends me messages of dogs that he knows that I interacted with as puppies and and helped raise and train for sale over there. Says here they are in their career. Yeah, he sends me mm. photos of them, right? And I fucking love that and appreciate that, yeah. right? Like I get a photo and I'm like, oh, there he is. Like he's not dead. He's, he's living his best life. Yeah, he's out there fucking people up, right? Mm. I think we posted in the, day, in the group when Remy's dad, Jack, when Sam sold him to WA cops, like there was a thing where Jack really fucked someone up. And um, I posted it. I was like, yeah, hey, right? right? Like I know him. <laughs> uh, that's something you can explain to people and that's mm. using love as a motivator, right? Yep. And I think that's the best one to go for because you'll get the dog cheaper. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And Mm -hmm. the last one is money is motivator. You can Mm -hmm. say, and this is one I've certainly used to people and you say, Hey, like you want to make some money because I can sell this motherfucker. Yeah. Right. Yeah. A lot of the time that can be a way out for people as well. And whether it's, you know, it's not as easy as explaining it like that.
2: But that's a good point, right? Is sometimes people just need the nod. Mm. They just need someone like you or me or another trainer who isn't leading them up the wrong path and is trying to do the best thing and give purpose to everybody just to say to them, it's the right thing to do, man. Yeah. And they go, thanks. And that basically just takes the yoke from around their neck. Yeah. You know? They're now unshackled with that burden.
1: Yeah. And that yeah. would be probably still putting into that middle pile there that I'd say like that love as a motivator pile. Mm. But something I do on the reg is when people come to me, especially if they come with a Mally and they've got like headache issues with it, if the dog is good, one of the first things I say is like, hey, how how attached are you to this dog? Yeah. Like is this – Yeah, that's one of the questions that needs to be asked. Yeah, because – This is going to cost you money to fix. Like I say, hey, Mm. we can do all this. There's no problem. We can train like you're motivated, dedicated, blah, blah, blah. We can work through this. Mm. Or I can put this dog in my car right now and give you $5,000. Yep. (laughs) And and a lot of people go like, what? Yeah. (laughs) Like they have no idea. And you go, this dog can cost you money just fine. We can totally do that. That's a hundred percent a pathway we can go down and you can employ me to train the dog, blah blah blah. And that's know? called a win win win.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Or it can say, Hey, like I will give you money right now. Yeah. And I will buy this dog off you. Remove and- the problem, financially compensated. And the dog gets to go into fulfillment and purpose in its life. Yep. Win, win, win. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And so that's, for me, I think the
1: three motivating factors that people will. Like provided everything else is in check up to that point, when it's time to have that conversation, they're the three prongs that I would go for. Yep. And I can't tell you which one to go for. It's because, you know, that's going to be depending on the dog and it's the relationship tailored. with the people and all mm. that. But that's going to be – and I would I would fall if, – if I really felt strongly about rehoming the dog, I would fall back – to one after the other you know what i mean like i would try all three Mm. um and and i think that you like the the boogeyman sort of example using fear as a motivator like that is a good motivator if need be but also it's your responsibility to inform people like hey well here's the reality of a situation like and and even as the trainer that has done some work with that dog maybe Mm. you need to put that in writing you know what i mean so that you can say to people like hey like i want to formally tell you that I don't think you should be walking the streets of this dog and I want it known because I don't want the liability coming back to me. Yeah. We've done
2: that before where, totally. we've, where we've done assessments with dogs and we've rang people up and said, there's a discussion that needs to take place here and also a form that needs to be filled out. Yeah. Just so you know, that's confronting, you know, that is confronting and people are a little alarmed about it, but we don't explain it to you're the bad guy. What we just do is we just need to let you know, our professional observation in the time that the dog's been here. Yeah. You know, and if the girls are worried, they call me down and say, can you tell me what you see here? They'll just say, we see something, we want to know what you see. And then I'll explain to them and I'll say either that matches exactly what we're thinking or we were thinking this and that's just added some more concern to what we've got. Yeah. That's a good thing to happen. And if you're in a professional organisation and you've got staff and colleagues around you, we talked about this a while ago where we said, you know, get a second or third opinion sometimes. Yeah. Ask ask a colleague to step in sometimes to just say, I value your opinion on this as well. What do you think? There'd be no reason I wouldn't ask you if, if I had a situation where if there was a dog down here, I'd say, hey, Pat, have a look at this. What do you think? What are you seeing? Sometimes you're so close to the problem you don't see it for what it is sometimes. Yeah, especially on your own dog. Right. That's exactly right. And and sometimes it's, you know, this is why I put so much emphasis on having a second set of eyes and that is with sports coaching or behavior assessments and everything like that it does pay to have that second set of eyes there sometimes where people go hang on a minute i can see something that could be workable or that you're not looking at you're too close to the problem yeah so this might be something that you need to consider or the handler needs to consider
1: i think that is one of the the big benefits of professional networking yeah is that
2: you have to have people you trust absolutely and,
1: and i think the good thing about that kind of stuff is it can be they can be on another fucking continent like they not yep. your competitor. You can send them a video and just say, hey, do you see what I see here? Exactly. You know what I mean? And, and even
2: if they are your competitor,
1: it, you're not competing at that point in time. Yeah, mm. exactly. But I think that's one of the most important parts. Like in all the fuckery you see on Facebook and yep. people issue is with Facebook, uh, with dog training and groups and people arguing and blah, blah, blah it's so counterproductive because you, you can make a bold statement and mm. you can make yourself look good, but what you are actually doing is removing yourself from the pool of people who are all willing to help. Yeah. Right. And when I think a lot of the times the exact language you, you'd know, cause I've, when I send videos to you, all I ever say is, do you see what I see? Yeah. So that tells them immediately like this is something I need you to look at for me.
2: Yeah. Right? With no
1: with Yeah, I no don't tell you precursor. what I think I see, yep. but it's me saying I think there's a problem, can you see if you see it rather yeah. than saying like, "Oh, look at this issue." And then yep. of course I've confirmed like my your bias is set to yeah, see. You've that. already red flagged it. Yeah. The, and if right. I if I don't send it to you with do you see what I see, I'm sure that you go, "Oh, Pat's sending me another dog meme." Like this is <laughs> this is some useless video I'm just going to stroll past and maybe just yep. write back a haha or a smiley face yep. or an lol. <laughs> Yeah. Right? So you got to say but I think having people that you can do that with
2: is super important, right? Mm-hmm. It is. It um, is very important.
1: Yeah. But yeah, I think that's we've kind of answered the question. I feel like have the talk about genetics and how it's not their fault. I think that um What was the second part we fucking said? Jeez, my brain's fried on
2: Well, we've got to give them a a series of choices. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: Decide whether it's suitable to continue the training for that. Oh, the other thing I was going to say, the final part on it, this is what I was was giving myself a little recap to remember my last bit. Mm -hmm. There is another option, but it's one that I prefer not to explore, is we can say to people, like, I can just crush a dog. Yeah. Right? And they say like, oh, this is the dog has all this drive and this intensity of, we can take that out. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's a lot of the time that that's what people have asked me to do a couple of times. And I, I said, no, I'm not, I'm not doing that. Mm-hmm. I've given you all these options. This dog is a one in a million people are paying that there's, I've given you a bunch of reasons why we should yep. move this dog on. And I'm totally prepared to help you with the dog. If you decide to keep it and we can keep him intact as who he is,
2: but I'm not crushing him. I think we emphasize that in a point earlier on is that basically what you do and you know, the more I look into this, the more discussions that we have with people on the show and just in general in the community, what you're doing is basically saying, I want you to take away purpose. Yeah. You know, and that really is a, that's a confronting thing. When you take purpose away from any species, you're really robbing them of a reason to live. Yeah. That's a fuckery of a thing to do. It really is.
1: And, like those good work dogs, they're fucking unicorns, man. So mm. like I like my loyalty is to the industry as a whole and the dogs as a whole rather than an individual client. Yeah. Right. Especially if I don't want their money. Mm. You know what I mean? So like when someone says to me, Hey, I've got this dog, he's just too much. I'm not I'm not prepared to put in any of the work, but we're definitely keeping him because my kid likes him. They don't ask directly, but they because I don't know exactly what they're asking for. But we need all this to stop, and we just want him to be on the couch and mm. say, "Hey, I'm not, I'm not capable of doing that." I will even go as far as to lie and say I don't know how if they're continually pursuing it. Yeah. Say that it can't be done. Blah blah blah. I had it with a Springer one time where it was just too much dog, and I was I said I can take this dog right now. We can both make a tidy little sum here. Like yep. everything can be fine. No 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 no. He just would need him to stop running around like that. And I was like, I'm not the guy. I yep. can't help you. I, I can't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, because I fucking love that your dog does that. And I've got all these options for you. I can teach you nose works. I can teach you. I can, or I can walk out of here. Yeah. Channel him toe. into a purpose. Yeah. Mm. But I'm not, I'm not doing that.
2: Mm. Do you know, there's another thing that again, this conversation's really flared up some thoughts in my mind. And I'm, I'm pretty sure it was when we had a discussion with Mike Suttle, and we were talking about when he sells dogs to government agencies, et cetera, et cetera there's a lot of these dogs that actually get sold off that just disappear into the ether as well. Like they're Mm. amazing dogs. It's most of them. They go. Yeah. And that's, that really is troubling to me as well. When you look at, you know, like that genetic potential that is just disappearing into agencies, what I think would be a great thing to do would be if the agencies can actually have the foresight to see this dog is actually amazing. You know, like the pairing of the handler and the dog are exceptional What they should consider is what they've actually got there and store semen from the dogs. You know, like never totally remove it from the program and then say to people like Mike Suttle and all the other breeding facilities around the world is, hey, we've stored semen from this dog. It's exceptional. Here's some video to show you the dog working in the field. We would like to see if you could produce something similar to this and we're gonna give you the semen to do it. Yeah. With some compensation, of course, on puppies and so forth. I don't know how that works. But just so the dog, the potential of the dog and the genetics just doesn't vanish from the face of the earth forever on that dog.
1: That does happen. Good.
2: good. It does happen. Yeah, it, I know of I people. have limited knowledge on that. Like I don't have any um, no, foreseeable so it's knowledge definitely, that. So definitely happens. Good. And and it should. It definitely happens. It just probably the issue
1: is, like I say, just because that dog works well doesn't necessarily It doesn't mean, mean it'll carry
2: over. I agree with you. Yeah. yeah. And then the issue is, you know- But the, the potential is there and yeah. it still should be investigated, you know, as a program. Would this actually be fulfilling?
1: Yeah. I know of police. I won't name the dog or the police because it, I don't know that they're allowed. But they've said, you know, like, I just want more of these. Yeah, And I, you can breed this dog to your cow if you want, if you think it's going to- produce more and yep. all, all he wanted was first chance to buy a yep. puppy, not even wanted money back. He just like, cause his purpose is he's like, mm-hmm. I need more dogs like this work in the street. Yep. So I just want the
2: opportunity to buy first. I don't yep. even want money back. Perfect. Like I'm saying, there should be a science behind it. It shouldn't just be blindly thrown around as, you know, here go make more puppies. There should be an investigation behind it. You know, he's, you obviously know the lineage of the dog here's the semen, what would be a most suitable and appropriate mating for this to happen?
1: Yeah, and that's the responsibility of civilian breeders. Yeah. You know, yeah. the, there are people in police and military that are so invested they do know how to breed and they know yep. bloodlines and do. that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But that's a rare person. That's, yep. a, that's a rare that you get those two things in combination. The yep. majority of people are lifelong enthusiasts. And, and and their budget doesn't allow for it. Either. Exactly, right.
2: And so It's not their fault. Their budget just doesn't allow for it. Yeah.
1: But what you see, and unfortunately, you know, sometimes it ends up being kind of dodgy, it has to be kind of under-the-table deals because the the
2: department doesn't allow for that. And like they the, don't understand it. They're yeah. the people who don't understand the necessity to fund their their operatives better yeah. and to understand the importance of genetics and how this will play out for their future generations. That's right. And they
1: just don't understand it. So you can imagine you go to your admin guy and you yeah. say, hey, look, you know, I know that it's in our policy that our dogs are not meant to be bred to civilian dogs. Mm. However... I think this is a risk that we should take. This guy wants to breed from our dog. He's going to give us first opportunity, first pick of the litter if we allow it. It's a win, win, win but then that per, the admin person then gets on google and goes like what's dog semen worth and they find and and of course when you google something like that it comes up with the highest ones it doesn't give you like an average Yeah. And it says oh okay $6000 a mating yeah they so get then, it from wikipedia yeah exactly yeah. Yep. and then so then they go all right well this is gonna... like a fair deal because it is fair in their mind because they don't know what they're talking about a fair deal is $6000 and then you say to the guy hey it's 6 grand he says fuck off like yep. I'm not doing that. And then it all falls apart. Mm. Whereas if you could just be responsible and say like, Hey, we, which is what some people do. Some people are definitely doing this. Yeah. I just have to be careful about saying it needs to be a quid pro quo. Yeah. Yeah. But, and that's the issue is then it is the problem then is you're dealing with government departments who aren't allowed to do that. Right. Because then there's favoritism and blah, blah, blah. Right. And they think all these things have to go to tender. You can't, that's illegal. Yeah. So that's why, it is happening in many places illegally. It is happening legally other places as well. Mm. Um, in that like, like what you see in some units is like you see the SF units that have bigger budgets buy better dogs. And then they have the, they then stud those to like the wider defense to yep. say like, you know, we spent a lot of money on this dog it makes no difference to us who like you could breed him every day for a week here. But then we get to pick from the the litters, and yep. that that definitely is happening within organisations.
2: Yeah, excellent, yeah. wonderful. Yeah, it has to. Yeah. It has, it has to. to. It has to, because as we said, you'll just start seeing the extinction of working dogs. Yeah, because they they'll go out into the field, and if they're not used appropriately, you'll just get such a drift that you won't see them anymore.
1: Yeah, totally. And mm-hmm. like we all see how hard it is to find them.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and you're right; they're becoming more and more unicorns. Yeah.
1: But that conversation, like all that ties into the idea of saying to people, like what you have is yep. a one in a million and for you, it's a one in a million headache. Yeah. And for somebody else, it's a one in a million sweet spot. Like mm. this is, this dog is just needs to be in different hands.
2: Yeah. This is an interesting conversation because of late, I've had several conversations with people who've got an eye and the good thing is, is that they're actually asking all the right questions, which I really appreciate. That's good. So they've started off with a breed in mind, usually a working dog breed. And by the time we've got through the conversation, I've been able to convince them that's not the dog for you. Mm. And it's simply by asking them a lot of questions and getting them to meet me halfway. It's not all my way. I haven't got a dog in this race. For me personally, you know, if they get a problem dog, I'm going to get a lot of work out of yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. You know, like more, you actually win. I, I, I win, you know, in the long run, I win out of it because they'll keep me in mind. and They'll say, oh, okay, well, we've got the dog. I need you to fix it for me. Yeah. So unethically, I can just say, yeah, get that dog for sure. You know, and we've got a lot of work out of it. Or I can steer them in the right direction and still um, get work out of the dog. Maybe not as much, but I can still give them fulfillment and purpose for having the type of dog that they really needed in their house. As you said, I give them multiple choice. I don't just say to them, here's the dog that you need to do. You know, I just say, have you got kids? Yes. Are you doing this? Yes. What's your house like? This. It's like this. What's the backyard like? It's set up like this. What's your go-to? So I come to you, I say,
1: hey, I live in a – Where I do. Okay, so I live in a townhouse in the city. I've got a kid, maybe more coming. Yep. I work a lot, but I can go to the
2: local park at least. I can give the dog an hour a day. Yep. What kind of dog should I get? Big or small? I'm not fussed. Okay. If they've got a couple of kids, you want a family dog that's going to fit in the house. These days, I'm usually recommending Cavoodles. Really? Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, funny little... Teddy bear dog, loves children, loves flopping around on the bed for you, comical, lots of energy, funny life, and it's satisfying a lot of needs these days. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I agree.
1: I think that I've seen – of course
2: I've seen some fucking disaster coodles because – That's going to happen. But that's our business is to see the problem ones. There's always the shit milkshake, as you said in in the movie Twins. That's what Danny DeVito turned out like.
1: (laughs) The shit milkshake. (laughs) Yeah. But – I have so many friends, so they're not clients because the client ones are all problem
2: ones, right? Yeah. But I have so many friends who have amazing little cavoodles. Oh, they're, are they're like, funny little dogs. Yeah. They're, the people who own my company, they've got a cavoodle who's just a fantastic little dog. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I know you're right. They don't all turn out like that, but everybody I know who's got a cavoodle are happy with their choice. Yeah. It's their beloved little family dog. Yeah, yeah.
1: And they're little prank monkeys as well. They are. The issue I think <laughs> that is. I have people contacted me, especially after having worked with one and turned into an assistance dog. Yep. People want it. And I said,
2: no, they're not for that. That's a different job. Yeah. Yeah. That's a different job description. But as
1: a, as a little prank monkey in the yeah. house, they're good little pets. They're yeah, goofy little family pet. Usually robust little dogs. Mm. They're, they're actually really good. All yeah. right. But I want a big dog. What am I getting? A uh,
2: big dog. If it's a family dog. If it's a if it's a dog that the family want to enjoy, I'm steering people to labs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Usually yellow labradors, Mm -hmm. all the blonde labradors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. they just they tend to be more robust as a dog. Yeah, yeah. we get tons of labradors here in the kennels, and they really fulfil a type of dog where they're just fun, goofy. Yeah, you know, they just love life. They're greedy, so they're easy to food train and everything like that. And they just you know they can be boisterous and they can be a little bit monstrous at times themselves. But more often than not, they're a good choice for a family dog. But then sometimes the objection that I get to that, because I used to say similar stuff, is, yep. oh,
1: it's the vanilla of dogs. I want something. Yeah, but that's what they want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I know, I know, I know. But they, they don't want to be seen eating vanilla. They want a vanilla chalk chip or something, right? So mm. what what's your next one? Female Rottweiler. Female Rottweiler. Female Rottweiler. Yeah, right. Yeah. This is where we part ways, sir. Mm. I was with you to this point.
2: <laughs> <laughs> if they want something with a bit of character. Yeah. That's formidable. Yeah. Yeah. It's generally uh, a female Rottweiler and caution on the selection of them as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. What about yourself?
1: Um, Similar. I don't like if they don't want that, the lab or golden retriever, mm. of course I try and sometimes steer people towards greyhound from rescue. Cause yep. I think that does often make the ultimate pet, mm-hmm. you know, my sister's one that we, we've we done a whole show on now is – it's part of the couch. Yeah. Like it literally is – it doesn't do anything. It just is this nice little dog that lives in the house effortlessly.
2: But that's not the dog they wanted.
1: No, it is. That's what they wanted, yeah. She no, no, just no, no.
2: Not your sister, but the person. That's They didn't want a uh, couch potato. No, but that's mostly what people do want mm. when
1: they say they want something else. So I try – and the dog will go to the park. Like, yep. like there's plenty of greyhounds in my area in the inner west there. There's plenty of like, you know – what do they call them? Green collar greyhounds, like X racing or failed racing, whatever. Are usually pretty good dogs. Like Mm. they, you only have to walk them, you know, two or three times a week. They're not desperate to go out every day. When they do walk, they sprint around, they interact with other dogs, they play, they do their thing. And then they happy to go home. Mm. Like it overwhelmingly, I see them turning out pretty good. Of course you don't see the bad ones, Right. Mm. And their referral network of trainers tends not to include me. So I don't get a lot of
2: referral of – in the past anyway, I didn't get a lot of referral of greyhound stuff. That doesn't matter. You've done the right thing by fulfilling a rescue dog's needs. Yeah. And that's a good point too, you know, which brings us back onto the rescue track is that something that I'll tell people to consider as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, like Peggy's Promise is our rescue that we've elected – but there's tons of really good rescue centers out there. But I know the girls at Peggy's are very ethical with trying to pair the right person with the right dog. Yeah. So if people say to me, you know, look, I'm after a dog, I'm not sure, but I don't want a puppy. I want an adult. That's what I say is just say, here's the number for Peggy's promise. Give them a call, speak to them, tell them what exactly what your standard of living is like, how much time you can commit to the dog. And I said, ask them to show you like a variation of dogs. Mm. Ask them for if they've got half a dozen dogs, they can show you. Ask them to show you half a dozen dogs, yeah, and that way you can sort of ask them questions and and speak to, you know, the care of that dog and get an indication what that dog's like to live with. Yeah, because you've you've got a preset at that point in time as well.
1: Yeah, I agree. When yeah. people are overly prescriptive with me about what they want from the dog, i yep. say go to a rescue because yeah, it's, yeah, a, yeah. it's a dice roll. Like. Yep. Oh, but you can train it like like I can train within the capacity of
2: the dog. Yeah, like you, but not to the specifics that they've just. Yeah, if you've got a
1: really clear cut, Mm -hmm. like go find that dog. He's somewhere. Yeah, the other one I find myself uh, telling people to get on. (laughs) Jugs, I fucking love those little dogs, man. Jack Russell Pugs.
2: Oh, yes. They're the best. Yeah, they're funny little I've, dogs.
1: Like, I've seen a bunch in my life. I've never met one that wasn't an awesome little dog. Yeah. I have never seen one. I've never had one as a client. Wasn't Katrina breeding jugs? Uh, and she's got those little mini bull things that yeah, are good little balls, dogs yeah. as well. Yeah, I mean, definitely. They're amazing. Mm. Uh, I'd say that probably has a lot to do with- the way she prepares them for people as well as the dog itself. But uh, the jugs, I've I've never had one as a client other than people that are trainers and want to get better at training. I've never seen a problem
2: one, never in my life.
1: I think they're the coolest little dogs ever.
2: Mm. Yeah, there's Uh, some fun little breeds out there. Yeah, yeah. Like we get some really – funny little concoctions because we're getting thousands of dogs a year coming through the kennels, and I mean thousands. Yeah. You know, we get to see so many breed variations, and some of them you just don't think will work. Actually, a sweet little dogs. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's quite fun to – to go down there – like I'm I'm literally in the kennels every night. Like I do – before I go to bed, I just go down and, you, you know, do – Yeah, just do it once over. Just make sure that the place is locked up properly, the dogs are safe and everything like that. Just It's just the standard thing I like to do and responsibility in my role. But you go down there and you see some of the funny little dogs down there and they're so cute. You know, sometimes I go in there and have a little interaction with them and yeah, yeah. just think, oh, I haven't seen a little – Crossbreed like this before. Yeah, I don't know what they're like to live with because I'm seeing a snapshot of them. Yeah, not not the twelve-inch version. I think that's the problem, right? Like as dog trainers we get so accustomed to the problem dogs yeah Right, like because that's what we're It's so we get the call about right you said and this a while ago in an episode about what vets see in yeah dogs that come into their clinic as yeah, well yeah that's it right yeah. you see like it's a bias that you can develop 100 percent. whereas mm. the the truth is mm. and we talk about ah oh, the people
1: don't do this and the people don't do that but the truth is owning i think owning a dog is fairly intuitive most people do it effortlessly they might have a you know a few little problems a dog rips up the house once or twice and its life but fuck mm. my dog does that every now and again right like it's just totally normal that's what happens and most people they get along with their dog great and we see the problem dogs and therefore we go like oh well like cavoodles right like i see a lot of problem cavoodles but Mm. i think that as a snapshot in the percentage of cavoodles that are out there it's hardly any right like i think that the overwhelming majority of them are are great of course I, i see the problem ones and i see carry on a certain traits like actually i was talking to someone about this just recently that like If a cavoodle has that like lab gene of never feeling satiated and is kind of babied as a young dog, that's a recipe for disaster. I've seen Mm. quite a few then become very dangerous bitey little dogs over food, right? Like they're like dangerous. Uh, And that's a trait that can manifest. And so it would be easy for me to go, oh, cavoodles don't ever get one, but mostly they're amazing little dogs. Yeah. Client ones are all a headache. My it's only my friends ones that I see, like in their natural state, right? Yeah. Like this
2: is just how this dog is. Yeah, we're generally getting called into a war zone. Yeah. Yeah. When the relationship is broken down, we're we're the mediator that steps in to resolve the issue for yeah. them.
1: Or even if it's not relationship, even if it is a actual problem of like the dog, you know, is got a screw loose or whatever.
2: Yep. Yeah. Whew. Time to wrap it up. What a conversation. It's a fun one. It was a good one. Thanks for the question, Jason. Yeah, that hopefully really, that gives you some tools. Yeah, that evolved into it's a kaleidoscope of ideas. A kaleidoscope, it was yeah, a kaleidoscope it was a kaleidoscope of, kaleidoscope of ideas. ideas. But it was good because it was uh, it got us thinking on a few different trajectories. Yeah. Hmm. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. All right, that's it for another episode of the Canon Paradigm. Oh, it's not.
1: I thought of something. What? Brent Dry has a new uh, video series that I think everybody should check out. Yeah. Brent Dry, friend of the show. Mm. He's just made a like online content. There's two versions. Yep. There's one for the owners, like the average pet person, and mm-hmm. there's one for the dog world professionals and there's on group classes and raising puppies. Definitely check it out. Yep. Canine Company, check it out. Brent Dry's made that. He's a legend. I'm sure
2: his content's amazing.
1: Yeah. Check we love out. him. Yeah. Check it out. Check it out. Check it out.
2: Yep. Um, and bef- if we're giving shout outs, I gave one on the discussion group as well, but I just do want to give a shout out to Courtney and Misha, who've got the super serious dog podcast oh, on yeah. YouTube. Fun You've girls. you done an episode with I've them? I've done an episode with them. I think you're doing one in, yeah, in a couple, of weeks, couple yeah. of weeks time. They never meant it to be a like a serious, take yourself serious podcast. It was a podcast to have fun. Mm-hmm. And that's their ethos. And that they are fun girls. I enjoy having conversations with them. Misha and I and, and us have been friends for several years now. I do have fun conversations with her. I enjoy the time that I debate an issue with her. Uh, and it usually does spiral into a fun conversation. So I appreciate that they asked me to be on the show. I wish them all the best and uh, support them. Cool.
1: Mm. Yeah, me too. Yeah. All right. That's it. Yeah. It's really it
2: this time. Yep. Uh, for the sales pitchy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if you uh, the Matt Boone oh, wrap up, you've
1: thrown me off. I can't remember how I say the thing now. You've got to talk That's about it for whether other episode what of the Paradigm. If you if uh, you like what you hear, be specific. Yes, tell us exactly what you like in yeah. some sort of review in an open forum somewhere. Yeah. If you have got bad things to say, just bottle them up. Keep them to yourself. And if you
2: want to send us a little <laughs> gift like Roger Wallace did. Yeah. Um, that would be That would be lovely. amazing. Yeah. Honestly, I really you, appreciate that, Roger. Yeah. It is like warm the cockles of my heart. Absolutely. Lovely sincerely. letter. I won't read
1: the letter on air. On but Yeah, was- the
2: letter was personal to you yeah. and I, and it was, uh, as we said, it was very well received. Yes. Thank
1: you, yep. sir. And if you'd like to support the show, the best way to do that is via Patreon. A few bucks a month there gets you some extra content. I've got to redo the q and I'll probably do that. Well, I'll do it this week. This will be out by the time I've redone that.
2: I've still got a scent detection one in the pipe works. It's been a long time running. I do apologise to people. I've been getting some questions over when it's coming because I put a preview up. I do apologise, folks. I've been incredibly busy at work, like more so than I thought I would be, but there's just been a lot happening that's been preventing me from doing it. Plus, I wasn't happy with a version that I put out there, so I wanted to change it. So I am sorry for the delay. I will get it out there. Thank you for sticking with me. Got it. Yeah. Another way to
1: support the show is Teespring. Jump on there, buy some cool merch. Mm. Uh, if you want to get in contact with us, best way to do that is in the discussion group. Yep. Right? Get group source some information there. Tag us if it's something specific. Yep. Or you could choose an e- email. We are info at thecanonparadigm.com.
2: Yeah. Any good ideas for the show that you want to hear? Like you're our listeners. There's things that you guys want to talk about. Let us know.
1: Yeah. That's it. All
2: right. Goodbye.